I was adopted as an infant. I later came to meet my birth family. If I had known they were from old New England money, if I had known that I was going to have a big trust fund available to me at age 25, I can't imagine that I ever would have made anything of myself. Not believing that I had a huge sum of money coming up as I entered adulthood was, I think, enormously beneficial for me. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. Happy week after Labor Day. I hope you had a wonderful holiday weekend that you got to spend time with people you love and you got to recoup and re-energize and that you're looking forward to an exciting work week in front of you. I have an excellent guest to share with you today. His name is Robert H. Frank. He goes by Bob, and he is a professor emeritus of economics at Cornell University and the author of several books that study status, ambition, spending, and social signaling, and the evolution within our human existence that leads us to engage in all of those behaviors. Bob and I had a great conversation about the role of luck in the lives of successful people We get into it pretty good, and he's not judgmental. After you listen to this guy, you're like, this is the kind of guy I want to hang out with because he's smart and he cares, and he's got a lot of interesting thoughts on the way the world works, and I know you're going to want to hear it. But first, a bit of housekeeping. I want to say hello to the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group on that there Facebook. They are Heather Laverne. Hello, Heather. Please tell those guys that you and I both know that I said hello. Hello, John Pepper. Thanks for joining. I know you had some very specific thoughts about my conversation with Charlie Whelan, especially as it relates to the minimum wage and universal basic income. Let it fly on the Facebook, brother. That's what it's there for. I want to say hello to two new members outside of the United States, Mirali Virayan in the UK. Greetings, sir. Thank you for joining us. And Boglarka Petri. Oh, I'm so sorry I didn't do a very good job of pronouncing your last name. There should be phonetics on Facebook. Anyway, Thank you so much for uh, saying hello, and I'm pleased that the episodes you mentioned you found worth your time and look forward to staying in touch in the future. Also, I've got some new comedy dates on my website. There's links to it in the show notes if you're interested in coming out, hearing me tell jokes in person where if you sit close enough, uh, you might just get some spittle on your forehead. It happens. Sometimes I get excited. Anyway, they're up there. Most stuff is in Atlanta right now, but we're working on some out-of-town dates. So keep checking back. I also want to say thank you to the staff and the over 300 people who came out last month to the shows at the Capital City Club here in Atlanta. I am putting many more country club dates on the calendar. So if you happen to have a club that you want to have an incredible evening of comedy with some intelligent content, some edgy content, I'll say it as a little edgy, and content that is is geared especially towards adults, shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Or hit me up on the socials. Links to those are in the show notes. And let's get something on the calendar. While we're at it, take a second to rate and review this podcast. Your recommendations and endorsement help other people looking for intelligent content in the podcast sphere sort through the other 2 million podcasts that aren't worth their time. Okay, 1.9999999 aren't worth their time. But this one is. And so if you believe if you believe it's worth your time, let your friends know, email it to them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right, let's talk about luck and success. Here's some questions for you. To what degree did luck play a role in your success, lady and or gentleman? Which is it? Did you work hard or were you lucky? Or is it some combination? Let me ask you another question. To what degree is it in your own self-interest for successful people to acknowledge 
the role luck has had in their lives. And why is it important for us to take a few minutes every day or every week to remind ourselves how we've been lucky and how our lives might be different or in fact over if we weren't so lucky? Today's guest has some very specific thoughts on this matter because not only is he an expert in the field who studies these kinds of things, he is also alive because he was very lucky one day. On one particular day, an ambulance that he needed very desperately just happened to be nearby. And so he not only thinks about luck as an author and as an academic, he lives it every day as a human being. As I mentioned before, Robert H. Frank is a professor emeritus at Economics at Cornell University, where he teaches at the S.C. Johnson College of Business. He has written several books, including Luck and Success, Good Fortune and the Myth of Meritocracy, Luxury Fever, Money and Happiness in an Era of Success, and Choosing the Right Pond, Human Behavior and the Quest for Status. He has also co-authored a textbook, Principles of Macroeconomics, with former Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke. His writing appears in all kinds of academic journals, including the Journal of Economics, Journal of Public Economics, American Economic Review, but also in more mainstream publications like The Atlantic, Chronicle of Higher Education, and he is a regular contributor to the New York Times. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this conversation with Bob Frank. Bob Frank, welcome to Crazy Money. Paul, my pleasure to be here with you today. I want to talk about the role of luck in our lives and the role luck plays in our success. But before I enumerate the ways that I've been lucky, I'd like to ask you to share a story about the scariest game of tennis you've ever played. Yeah, it was uh, what I do write up in my book, Success and Luck. It, it's a weekly game I've had for years with my longtime friend and collaborator, Tom Gilovich in the psych department at Cornell. On a Saturday morning on a cold, dreary November day, he told me later that as we sat during a changeover during the second set, suddenly I collapsed off the bench we were sitting on. He knelt to investigate. I wasn't breathing. I had no pulse. He yelled out for others in the building to call 911 crew, and then he set to work on me. He'd never been trained in CPR, but but he'd seen it done on TV and in movies, as we all have. And he'd had an Israeli graduate student who told me, if you don't break the victim's breastbone in the act of doing CPR, you weren't trying hard enough. So he was determined he was going to make it work. And he, he pounded away on my chest. He said what seemed like forever. Finally, got a weak cough out of me. But then he lost me again, uh, and was about to give up when in through the front door of the tennis facility came the emergency crew. They ripped my shirt off. They put the paddles on me. They shocked me back to life. They took me in an ambulance away. They flew me to a hospital in Pennsylvania. They put me on ice overnight. Later on, I was told that I'd suffered an episode of sudden cardiac death and that 99% 99% of the people who experience that never, never revive. They're dead. But some people, if they get care quickly enough, they come back from the dead. Most people don't. And the doctor said, you don't want to see the, the small number who do come back because most of them are pretty messed up. There I was in the hospital and, and I was feeling fine. And I learned that the reason I made it was that quite by chance, about 30 minutes before I went down on the tennis court. There had been two, not one, but two auto accidents right near the tennis facility, which was some miles out of town. And there had been two ambulances dispatched to those uh, accidents. One of them had no serious injuries. And so when the call about me came in, that ambulance was free to divert to me. And and that's what saved me. I, I wouldn't be here except for the fact that there had been by Pure chance is the way I see it, an accident that sent the extra ambulance out to that site. 
Does surviving a near-death, well, not a near-death experience, an actual death experience, and surviving it by the whim of the universe, does that make you feel more grateful for every day you have today? Oh, sure. I mean, every day is really a gift. I mean, everybody ought to have the wit to realize that's true of them, whether they've had an experience like this or not. We are here by (laughs) what can only be called the longest of odds. I mean, the odds against any of us as individuals actually even existing are, are so remote. So yeah, if you can view your each day as a gift, that's a gift in itself. Most of us don't have the wit to do that. I certainly didn't, but the experience I had reminded me of it. And I try to think of of things in those terms ever since. Does that feeling wane over time? Did you become adapted to the feeling of having survived that and that became part of your new normal? Yeah, I think we do adapt more quickly to just about everything than most people think we could. I'm not conscious that it's really changed my attitude or posture in any obvious way. I didn't have any revolutionary new insights or vow to redirect my life in some radically different way. I'm probably a little bit more willing to say no to invitations I would have accepted at one point. But but no, it it didn't have a radical effect. But I think, you know, it got me interested in a whole range of phenomena that I hadn't paid much attention to before. And that's been productive. There's a a big literature, as you probably know, on gratitude. It's an incredibly interesting literature. In economics, we say the more you have of this, the less you have left over to do that. It's always trade-offs. The gratitude literature is telling a different story. Basically, it's the more you experience the emotion of gratitude, and this is demonstrated by ingenious experiments. They can induce the feeling of gratitude in lab subjects quite easily. And People in whom that experience is induced are happier, they sleep better, they experience fewer psychosomatic illnesses, they are more well-liked by their friends, they have more energy. There's no downside to experiencing gratitude. It sort of increases your range of capability on every dimension we seem to care about. So learn about that literature is something I don't think would have happened to me except for this experience. You've written several books, and the one we're talking about first is called Success and Luck, Good Fortune, and the Myth of Meritocracy. You start the book out with a quote from E.B. White that says, luck is not something you can mention in the presence of self-made men. Why might remaining mindful of the role of luck in their lives actually be good for those self-made men and women? It's certainly empirically well-documented that successful people tend to downplay the role of luck in their lives. A lot of people are cynical about that. They think, well, they're just trying to claim more credit than they're due, or they're trying to strike a posture that will make it more difficult for the government to tax their their, their (laughs) earnings or what have you. I think it's really more just a natural cognitive error. We construct our life history from events we can recall in memory. There's something called the availability bias. Some things are easier to remember than others. And My same friend, Tom Gilovich, has done interesting work on an asymmetry, a deep asymmetry between headwinds and tailwinds. So if you do a Google search on the term headwinds, you'll see vivid images that capture exactly the concept. There's a guy fighting to open an umbrella in the wind. There's a dog being with long hair being blown almost off the path by the wind. It's an obvious thing you confront when you're in a headwind, riding a bike or walking, struggling against it. You're conscious of the difficulty every minute. You have to work against it. 
when you turn the corner on your bike and now you have the wind at your back, that's a great feeling. You really are immediately sensitive to it. But then 15 seconds pass and it's completely out of your mind. The wind's at your back. You're not conscious of the fact that you're being helped along. Why should you be conscious of it? You don't need to do anything. So, you know, successful people, they're mostly hardworking. They're mostly very talented. The finalists in all the big tournaments are really very highly qualified and, and hardworking. And, and so, of course, they came in early, lots of days. They solved lots of hard problems. They defeated many worthy adversaries. Why am I successful? Those things spring immediately to memory. That's why I'm successful. The teacher who kept me out of trouble in 11th grade, I forgot about that. Or the colleague who was offered the promotion I got but couldn't take it because... He had to care for an ailing parent. Uh, I forgot that too. So partly, we don't really think in terms of all the factors that affected our outcomes. We're selective in, in what we attribute our success to. And I think it would be better for everyone if they were a little bit more conscious of the role of chance in their lives. As I mentioned, kindles a feeling of gratitude, which has nothing but good effects. But more than that, it makes people more generous in terms of paying forward for creating opportunities for the next generation. You know, I think most successful people, if you ask them if they'd been born in a war-torn poor country, how would they have done? They're realistic enough to know they wouldn't have done as well as they've done here. And we have really been shortchanging investments in the future over, over the past decades. And I think anybody who sort of reads about that and thinks about the effect of it realizes that it'd be good to spend more on all of that. So I remember the first time I heard a phrase that went something like this, that guy was born on third base and thought he hit a triple. For a long time in my life, I thought that applied to other people. I thought that applied to the rich kids when I was growing up. But the longer I lived, the more I realized that I was born at least on second base and had a pretty good lead. So we could debate second or third. So I thought I'd do my part here and list the ways that I can identify where I've been enormously lucky. First of all, I was born to two parents who wanted me, stayed together for 55 years and saw that I was educated and set on my way as an adult with what I needed. I was born able-bodied with 10 fingers and 10 toes in the United States of America, a free society for all its faults that has a rule of law and a pretty good opportunity to succeed for most people. There were a thousand times at least where I didn't get caught or the ball bounced my way. There were times that I did get caught and I learned a lesson. And then more specifically, I came out of business school in 1997, the dawn of the internet age, which was a wave I caught and set my career in the right path, culminating in having failed at comedy in my first iteration, just in time to join a 250-person company called Facebook. So all this randomness, that's been the wind at my back that I can identify in a short period of time. I could be lucky and lazy too, right? I mean, there's I could have all these things and still not take advantage of what life has given me to work with. And I say that knowing that it's utterly predictable and in completely unimaginative rebuttal. So, so how do those things come together? How do luck and hard work sort of coalesce to get us where we need to go? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I'm, I'm curious to ask you, uh, did the exercise of compiling that inventory have any effect on you? Were you as conscious implicitly of all those things before you enumerated them? I do talk about a lot of this stuff on a regular basis because of the podcast. But after I compiled that list, I thought, you know, I deserve all this. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I have some follow-up questions specifically about parenting. But certainly, I think it helps all of us to sit down and just say, let's remember the way things have gone that, you know, somebody with the same resume, somebody with the same 
DNA, somebody with the same objective attributes might come to very different, sometimes better, but more often not as fortunate outcomes as the ones that I've had based on any number of factors. So yeah, I think this exercise does make me more grateful and a happier person today. Yeah, that's not a surprise for me to hear, but but yeah, I think more people would look back on, on an attempt to do what you just did and be grateful that they had done it. You know, I think as a parent, though, do you want to tell your kid that luck plays a major role in life? I'm not so sure that that's a good strategy. To succeed in life, you have to do many things right. It takes a lot of work. You have to have a lot of patience. There are a lot of temptations that come along. It would be very easy to say, oh, I'll work on that tomorrow, not today. And if you've been taught that success is a, a consequence of random events beyond your control, I think that the implicit message there would be to, well, maybe I'll get to work on that tomorrow. I'm going to sit back and hope for a break to go my way. <laughs> right, right. If your parents hammered you from day one that whether or not you make something in this life is completely up to you, that's probably not a bad lesson to take with you. I mean, it's largely up to you. If you don't expend effort, if you don't hone your skills, you're, you're probably not going to succeed much. You might do all those things and still not succeed, but to have a, a chance to succeed, you really need to grab the bull by the horns and do what you can to advance your own cause. So I think that kind of biased message we give kids as parents is not is not a crazy warping of the facts. It's not accurate, but it's probably a, a useful message to give them. But if you work hard, I think everything's luck if you really want to push hard. I mean, you mentioned the genetic lottery, you're born with a temperament. Some people want to get out of bed early and get to work on things. You're born with much of what your, your learning capability is. Those things can also be affected by your environment. So if you had a great home life, parents who are supportive and, and nurtured you in the optimal way, you've basically won the lottery big time. You're as lucky as you can be. If you don't have those traits, you're unlucky. So one implication seems to be, well, you can't claim credit for anything. But, but I think that's, <laughs> right, the, right. that's the wrong message because there are times when you feel discouraged, you have to pull yourself up off the mat. You have to work hard when you don't, they call it working hard because it's hard to work hard, even if you're a driven person. And if you can say to yourself, I worked hard and I, I powered through that obstacle and congratulate yourself, pat yourself on the back for having done that. That makes you more likely to be able to do it the next time you have to confront a difficulty. So I think pretending you can claim full credit for all, all those things is probably a good thing, even though if we really dig deeper, in the end, it's all luck. I pat myself on the back whenever I, well, do something I didn't feel like doing and it works out okay. Well, we want our kids to, it's not just outcomes that we want them to be grateful for. We want them to know what it means to struggle and persevere and get through obstacles and achieve mastery because mastery is another source of contentment in our lives, right? Yes. Mastery doesn't come from being lucky. Mastery comes from, from practice and repetition, right? There's a big argument among the people who study the determinants of expertise. Uh, does it take 2,000 hours of concentrated practice to become an expert in something? Does it take 10,000 hours? Maybe at the other end, you see people saying 40,000 hours. It takes a long, long time of dedicated, difficult practice and perseverance to become an expert, whatever the number is. And the hardest thing, I think, for the MBAs who I taught for many years to hear is you shouldn't take the job that pays you the best 
we know as economists that the the less pleasant a job is, the more they have to pay you to get you to take it. So the, the, <laughs> right. the highest paying offer is probably one that is going to demand that you do something that most decent people wouldn't want to do. <laughs> take a job that really speaks to you in some deeper way, that really pulls some rope within you that kindles a, a feeling of pride or excitement, a job you like. Because if you take a job like that, you're going to not only not mind putting in the 10,000 hours to get to become an expert at something, that's going to be something you're going to want to do. And in 1995, Phil Cook and I published a book, The Winner-Take-All Society, which has as its theme that more and more technology enables the people who are the best at what they do to serve a broader swath of the market. So even if what you get to be the best at isn't a thing that very many people care about, at some point, the fact that you're the best at it is going to enable you to, to add value to the whole world collection of people who care about that. So if you want to get rich, that's probably not a bad thing to do either. It's maybe not the highest initial salary, but take a job you love. And that love will push you through the learning curve more, more exactly. effectively exactly. Than, than money will. And worst case, you don't make much money. At least you spent your working life doing something that was really engaging to you. All right. I want to come back to the winner take all society because it's a very interesting concept that comes up in a lot of your work. But I want to explore this luck issue a little bit more. Now, one of the things is I was thinking about zygotes don't choose their parents or the product of zygotes don't choose their parents. But I, as a parent and you as a parent, we can impart luck on our children. So to some degree, your luck really is, it's not just who your parents are and your genetic makeup, it's the degree to which your parents wanted you to experience life on a lot of different levels. How do you think about luck being transferable in that way? Well, I mean, the mere fact of our circumstances means that kids either start in life with a huge advantage or a huge disadvantage. You've described it well already. How we choose to augment that is the next layer. If you've been lucky, as I've been, we've earned more than we spend. We've saved a lot. We're very conscious not to create too easy a path for our kids going forward. I was adopted as an infant. I, I later came to meet my birth family. And at a family wedding I attended some years ago, an in-law of one, of one of my blood relatives was talking to me off to the side said, you know, it's really lucky you didn't grow up in the family. And I had already come to that conclusion, even though I liked the family, they were very nice people. But if I had known they were from old uh, New England money, if I had known that I was going to have a big trust fund available to me at age 25, I can't imagine that I ever would have made anything of myself. You know, all, all the things you have to do to launch a career, all, all the things that you'd Rather do instead in the short run, I would have found it easy to say, well, I'll work on those things next year. Uh, this year, I'm going to keep traveling or do whatever I feel like doing because I, I know whether or not I have a career will matter. I didn't have the, that knowledge. I didn't meet my birth family. I never actually got any money from them anyway, but so it wouldn't have mattered. But not believing that I had a huge sum of money coming at, at B as I entered adulthood was, I think, enormously beneficial for me. I find that part of your journey fascinating. Usually it's a single mother who puts her child up for adoption and is adopted by a wealthy couple who can't have children. And yours was kind of the opposite vector. Yeah, that's right. 
I would have had a lot more financial resources at my beck and call if I'd grown up in my biological family. But uh, yeah, best of all worlds for me was to have a, a good genetic start and then lots of love and care and no other artificial advantages on the way up. So what advice would you give to parents who are raising children in an affluent setting to say, you know, be sure you avoid these things or be sure you do these things? I think it's important for kids to know that their actions have consequences. So if you're thinking about how to make resources available to your kids, one formula might be, if you need money, tell me what you need it for and I'll respond. Another method might be, here's X dollars a week. It's yours to allocate as you see fit. If I had to choose between those two and I had to choose between those two, uh, it's hands down. Here's what you get each week. It's up to you to figure out what to do with it because learning that doing this means not doing that is an incredibly important lesson. And if you can get your needs fulfilled on request, you don't learn that lesson. You've written extensively over decades about success, status, consumption, and social signaling. Why are these topics of interest to you? There's a field that I've been in since its inception called behavioral economics. This is an attempt to reform the very narrow homo economica stereotype models that the profession has long relied on. Meaning that every human is a consumer who rationally optimizes utility every day. Yes, and that we're not uh, prone to any psychological foibles of any kind, that if we want to know how good a house is, we need to know how many square feet it has, how many bathrooms it has, what other appliances it, it might have in it. How big it is relative to other houses is just not anything that would matter. And so in behavioral economics, I think most of the work that's been done over the years has been work that focused on the rationality assumption. People aren't as rational as we assume them to be. They make stupid mistakes, even when the problem's fairly simple and they have all the available information required to solve it, they, they get it wrong. That's never been the part of the problem I've been interested in. I'm focused instead on the fact that we are pursuing a di different mix of goals than the ones assumed in the, in the standard model. We want something that's nice, but what's nice, nice is just a quintessentially relative concept. It's something that's better than other things. A lot of people talk about that as wanting to keep ahead of the Joneses. That makes it sound petty and, and small-minded. But nice is something that you would experience on a desert island. So it's something better than what you're used to. And if everyone else has 1,000 square feet and you have 1,500 square feet, then your house feels great. It feels spacious. It's lovely. If you have 1,500 square feet, everybody else has 3,000, then your house feels cramped. Uh, it's not enough room to maneuver. And beyond a certain point, what we know from the, the happiness literature, which, which I know you know very well, is that further increases in the sizes of the mansions make absolutely no difference in how happy or healthy anyone is. In fact, it's a pain in the ass to have a mansion twice as big when everyone has one because there's a lot more hassle to, to keep control of everything. And so if others are spending more and the rich have been spending more uh, because they've been getting the lion's share of all the income gains, of course, they're going to build bigger. That's what everybody does when they get more. And that 
filters down. The, the near rich spend more because they attend the wedding receptions of the daughters of the rich. They need now a ballroom so they can entertain 200 at a time. Their guests, one layer below, leave a dinner party feeling, now we need a dining room big enough for 18, not just 12. They build bigger. And, and so even the, the family in the middle is now building a house that's 60, 70% larger than it was in 1970, even though the median earner in real terms isn't earning anymore. That's all pure wasted money. That's money that could be spent on things that would actually make a difference. That's been the focus of my behavioral economics research. It's it's not on people making mistakes. It's perfectly rational to feel you need a bigger place if other people have a bigger place. Because if you have a cheaper place than, than others, your kids go to the worst schools. Right. But even within a neighborhood... Say it's all in the same school district. If Bob's got a five-bedroom house with a man cave, I'm going to want one too, you know? It feels like you're deprived if you don't have things that people around you have. One of the things that you've mentioned and that I was really surprised to learn about five or six years ago when I really started digging into this area of learning around wealth and happiness is that people would rather have less absolute income if it meant a higher relative income. And that just seemed twisted to me. And yet it makes sense. The reason that this branch of behavioral economics is struggling to get as much airtime as the cognitive errors branch is that it's looked on with disdain that anybody would have the feeling you described. Oh, I'd rather have less as long as they have even less. It's considered mean-spirited, small-minded, what have you. That completely misses the point, I think, of of what's driving all this. It's not small-mindedness or mean-spiritedness. Darwin's great insight, as I think of it, is very easily summarized as saying life is graded on the curve. That it's not how smart you are, it's not how strong you are, how fast you are that matters. It's how those traits compare with the ones you compete most directly against. And that's been the force that has molded us ever since unicellular animals first existed. I mean, it's always been a struggle for resources. The, the organisms that got more were more likely to propagate than the ones that got less. If you were an early male, well, males took more than one mate in most early human societies. If they could, you stress the qualifier because if some men take more than one mate, that means others don't get any at all. And that's the ultimate loser slot in the evolutionary struggle. You don't, you don't pass on your stuff to the next round. And so it's always been a contest to see who can prevail. The men who got more than one mate were not the low-ranking men. They were the high-ranking men. That's true in societies that still practice polygyny today. That's true in the vertebrate species that still are, for the most part, polygynous. It's the high-ranking males that leave more of their stuff behind than the low-ranking males. So the the idea that you would care about rank, uh, how am I doing? Well, how can you answer the question, how am I doing, except within some frame of reference? How am I doing relative to the people I'm competing against? It's not just wanting to outdo others, though. There's a parallel strand in evolution, which is I've not only got to outdo others, I've got to somehow get along with them and be able to trust them and make them trust me. So if you're too ambitious, if you're too determined to prevail, nobody wants you on their team. And you don't really succeed even in primitive environments, but much less in the current one, unless you're a member of a high-functioning team. But if you're a jackass, nobody wants you on the team. So yeah, it's a pretty complex and interesting 
blend of traits that I think evolution has smiled upon. You got to care about how you're doing relative to others, but you also got to care about others enough to put their interests ahead of your own when the, the chips are down in some cases. So if you want to pass on your genes, you can't get killed by the other members of the cabal. That would help. Yeah, that would help. (laughs) So in Luxury Fever, you catalog the yachts of a couple of very prominent shipping magnets at the time of publication, or even before that. And you mentioned that Aristotle Onassis's yacht had bar stools that were covered with the foreskin of sperm whales. Yeah, I don't know that from firsthand investigation. I read that in a, in a source. Uh, I suppose it's true. The important point was he wanted something that would stand out, and the foreskin uh, was meant to be a buttery soft hide uh, to use for upholstery. So, yeah, it had that, and it was rare, presumably, too. The interesting Part of the Onassis story is that Stavros Niarchos, his arch rival shipping magnate in Greece, wanted a yacht of his own. He didn't know yet how big the Onassis yacht was. So the contract with the Niarchos naval architect called for his own yacht to be so many feet longer than the Onassis yacht. Uh, however many feet that would be, you know, they didn't know yet. What are they really measuring in this case? It's not yachts, <laughs> right, Bob? Uh, mine's bigger than yours is the game. And so we see examples like that and we say, oh, well, I'm not like that. So that can't be important. But that makes you think that that's the essence of the phenomenon when it's really not. If you don't bid as much for a house as people in your income level are bidding, then your kids are going to go to the schools with the metal detectors out front. Uh, the good schools everywhere on earth are in the better neighborhoods, the more expensive neighborhoods. And if you're the median earner, you got to at least bid the median house price for your area. Your kids will be going to the inferior schools. That's one of the main points of all your writing, right? Is that these instincts that we have to overconsume, it's contagious. It spirals up. Uh, luxury fever has been out for a while. And in those intervening years, things have gotten worse, not better along these lines, right? We end up spending things that have little marginal increased happiness for the consumer when if we were to invest that in public goods, it would have significant marginal benefit for society. Yeah. And I think it's important to stress that those expenditures do seem sensible from the individual's point of view. So if you buy a house that's bigger and more lavishly appointed than is the custom for your circle, it will seem thrilling to you to move into that house. You won't say, oh, what was I thinking? It will seem like money well spent. What I think people don't take into account is that when everybody builds a house like that, then houses like that quickly come to be the norm and they no longer have any impact on anything that we care about. I was in the Peace Corps as a young man. I lived for two years in a house with two rooms, no electricity, no running water. It was a completely satisfactory house in the rural Nepal village where I lived those years. I was never ashamed for people to come over. It was a lovely house. It was a nicer house even than some of the other teachers in the high school where I taught lived. But in that house here, it would be completely unsatisfactory. My kids would have been ashamed for their friends to see where we lived. You know, the house I live in here would seem unbelievably lavish and elaborate to my friends in Nepal. They would wonder why somebody would need a house like that. But you wouldn't think that. My friends here don't think that. They live, many of them, in much bigger houses. 
Every standard is local and uh, what's normal is what's all around us. People aren't mad because they adopt the local frames of reference. But if we studied the research on all this, we would immediately see that if we none of us made the mansions any bigger and instead used the money that it would take to do that to spend on vaccine research, on green infrastructure, on uh, any host of things we could spend it on, where context doesn't matter, uh, we're actually solving absolute problems, life would be better for everybody, even the wealthy who wouldn't be building the big mansions. And we wouldn't be having hurricanes blowing our beautiful mansions away as, exactly. often, as often as we do. The challenge here, and you know, I'll push you on it a little bit, is that these things require actions in the aggregate that I can't decide as an individual to solve these huge problems by spending a little bit less on a house. That's why I think the cognitive errors branch of behavioral economics became so influential because uh, you could tell people about them. Here's a cognitive error people often make. They take sunk costs into account. Oh, I've I've got so much invested in this. I, I can't quit now. In fact, those are sunk costs. If there's no likelihood that you'll succeed by spending even more money, it's better to quit, even though you've already lost a lot of money. That's the case for leaving Afghanistan. The sunk cost fallacy is why we didn't leave Afghanistan. Right. So on, at the individual level, you can solve that problem. And so here's the problem. Here's the solution. We can write self-help books and make progress on the collective action problem side of the equation. That's the one I've been working on. Uh, you can't do that. So even if I, we all know that the mansions are too big, it would be better to spend the same money on other things. None of us individually can do anything about that. The only thing we can do is elect leaders who will adopt policies, who will steer those resources into the things that would matter more. And that's much, much more difficult to do. But for that reason, the losses that occur because of, of these problems are vastly bigger than the losses that occur on account of cognitive errors. Cognitive errors, the losses are big there, but they're small compared to these other losses. Assuming that I can't do anything about the broader macro problems in society, I don't want to say is I don't have any role in that, but what can I do as an individual? Like, how would you change my spending if you were to, if the goal were to maximize happiness, what would you do to each person's individual basket of consumption? There is some research showing that money spent on experiences yields a more durable increment in satisfaction than money spent on material things. So a trip uh, to a novel place, taking up a new sport, a new musical instrument, something like that, would be a consumer move that would yield probably more durable benefits than buying a bigger flat screen TV or a, a more expensive refrigerator. In both of those cases, you're amazed at first, but then you completely don't notice it after a week. You can, I think attempt to influence the collective solutions by the people you support in the legislative arena. People ask me what to do about climate change. I think there are certain political leaders who are the heart of the problem of our inability to deal with climate change. And you can imagine donating all sorts of green energy projects. My friends, donate to the opponents of these people. Get them voted out of office. The Virginia legislature at the state level, both houses in the 2019 cycle, was it, recently. And uh, Virginia now has, it's a state that's executed more people than any state 
in history, in absolute terms, never mind that it's not the biggest state, it's banned capital punishment. Virginia has now enacted one of the very most uh, ambitious green energy plans of any state. This was a state that was, in the recent past, unable to do anything in, in those arenas and, and now has been making quite noticeable progress. So I think acting collectively is something that's difficult to do as an individual, but you could pitch in. And one other thing I'll mention is that, like most economists, I was once skeptical of individual attempts to reduce greenhouse gas consumption emissions. Uh, we really need carbon taxes and green investment at the public level on a massive scale to, to make a difference there. Individual actions won't really make enough difference to be worth worrying about. I changed my mind about that in the course of working on my last book uh, because of the power of contagion to shape not just what other people do, but, but what we do. So maybe the most vivid example is solar panel adoption. If you put a solar panel set on your rooftop on day one, then within four months' time, early in the adoption cycle, there'll be a, a copycat installation. Not one that would have happened anyway, even if you hadn't done it, but one that wouldn't have happened except for the fact that somebody saw you do it. Now we've got two spawning copycats. So after another four months pass, we've got not two, but four and doubling every four months. So after two years, we've got 32 houses with rooftop panels in the same neighborhood. Uh, that's not even counting the relatives and friends in other locations that talk to these people and are encouraged to put solar panels on by what they learned from them. It's a huge magnifier of the individual actions, the fact that other people uh, are influenced by what they see us do. Even more important effect of that, I think, is that changing our own behavior changes who we are. So if you drive a hybrid car, yeah, other people see you do it, they buy one too. But that sort of creates in you or reinforces in you an identity as somebody who cares about the climate. Now you're suddenly more willing to make a donation to a politician who's running on a green energy platform to make an effort to canvas in the neighborhoods to get votes for that person and so on. So I think Collective action problems are intrinsically more difficult to solve, but that doesn't mean we should just say, why bother? I didn't mean to suggest that each of us is powerless. I just mean that what you're talking about, that a lot of these things are societal and baked in. And But I agree with you. You know, I looked into solar panels for our house here in Atlanta, and we're not quite there. It's like a 20-something year payoff or something like that, which the money isn't the only way to calculate the break-even on it, obviously. But Georgia Power actually has, you can allocate a certain amount of your power that comes from solar as opposed to fossil fuels. And it costs more, but you're at least yeah. you're at least telling the marketplace that there is a demand for cleaner energy. We have bought a share in a solar farm. We were told that we didn't have the right exposure to make solar on the rooftop pay, but we could buy a share in a solar farm. And that means all of our power comes from solar indirectly through the grid. I felt bad that, well, we're not encouraging anyone else to do likewise because nobody will see solar panels on a rooftop and say, oh, uh, the, the company chairman said, I got a solution for that. We've got a little sign out front saying, we've gone solar. It's sitting there where passersby can say, That's ah, great. they did it. Maybe we ought to do it. That's great. You had a theory for a way to change our tax system that would encourage people to make better decisions around how much they consume. Can you walk us through that, please? The whole proposal is based on the logic of what I call expenditure cascades. As you know, all the wealth gains and income gains have been going to the top. 
in recent decades, the people at the top spend more when they get more money. That's what everybody does. And that's part of the winner take all trend that's happening. Yes. Yes. That's part of the reason that that's happening. But policy is also reinforced. We've been cutting top tax rates on top of the, the organic market forces that have been steering money to the top. We've been actually leaning into that win with policy. And so and that's largely unproductive expenditure. You know, when all the cars get bigger, all the wedding celebrations get more expensive. Nobody gains from that. It just raises the bar that defines what we think of as adequate. We could spend that money in better ways. The remedy for that I've proposed is to scrap the progressive income tax and in its place adopt. Wait, wait, stop. You scrap the progressive income tax. I'm on board. I'm on board. Okay, that's out. Maybe you won't like what I'm going to replace it with. <laughs> but let's see if you want to go back to it. So instead, we adopt a much more steeply progressive consumption tax. And that sounds scary because people say, oh, how much do I consume? They're going to have to make me show receipts for everything I buy. No, all you do is you report your income the same as now. We could simplify that. It should. Then we document how much we've added to our savings during the year. A lot of people do that for retirement uh, savings accounts already. So we got two numbers, your income and your savings. The difference between them, income minus savings, that's how much you spent during the year. And then we take a big standard deduction off of that. That's your taxable consumption. If it's a small number, the tax rate is zero and the tax rate goes up gradually as that number gets bigger. And it can go up way higher than the current top rate on income because we're not worried about choking off savings and investment if we're taxing consumption because savings investment are taxed. Now, let's talk about the steps on this thing. So at, let's say, $100,000 a year in consumption, what am I paying in taxes on that? Well, we need to know what your income is. Let's let's say you have $200,000 in income and you spend a hundred, we're going to figure out how much you spend. Well, let's just say we know uh, the net spending, but income minus savings is consumption, right? Yeah. So that's a hundred. Okay. That's a hundred. So what do I pay in taxes on the hundred? We would subtract the standard exemption. Let's call that $10,000 a person for a family of four. That's 40,000. You'd pay tax on $60,000 of consumption. That's by today's standards, not a high, high level of consumption. Your tax would be fairly low. If you were consuming $5 million a year, if your income were $10 million and, and you save $5 million, you consume five, the tax on the next dollar you spend could be 100%, 120%. All that would be saying is- 120%, that, wow. That sounds like that's impossible. If it's 100%, that means if you want to add a, a million dollar wing to your mansion, that wing is going to cost you now $2 million. Right, right. Okay. The one million for the construction, the one million in extra taxes. Opponents to this idea would say, well, that is a disincentive for investment and it's going to put people out of work. On the contrary, it's not a disincentive for investment, it's an incentive for investment. It would matter how you implement this. Let's say we're coming out of a downturn, which we are doing now. We don't want to choke off any spending now. We want spending to increase to get people back to work. And so we'd say, we're going to adopt a progressive consumption tax, but not this minute. We're going to vote it into law now, but it doesn't go into effect until the unemployment rate's down to 4% or whatever level we set. That means the people at the top, oh, this progressive consumption tax is coming. 
we want to add a wing to the mansion. We better do it quickly. We want to have a big party. We better do it quickly. (laughs) So you get a massive boost in spending without an additional nickel on the government budget. Then it gets phased in gradually. And so the people at the top, oh, it's getting more expensive to do these bigger things. I'm going to save a little more and spend a little less. That money goes into the capital market. Interest rates fall the capital market makes loans to the people with the best project ideas. And so we get more investment. Consumption goes down a little bit and investment goes up a little bit. The total is not much different, the demand for for workers. And so we don't see any negative effect on the labor market. And over time, the extra investment creates productivity gains. That mean we're going to have higher income growth In time, we would even see higher absolute levels of consumption, even though consumption as a fraction of GDP would be smaller than before. Because it's going to be spread out over more people, not just the rich spending. The difference between the consumption of the rich and the consumption of everyone else would be smaller. And that would not hurt the rich because they would still have the best things. And having the best things is is where the satisfaction seems to lie for them. And the money would be spent collectively on things that would benefit them. There are probably some rich people who are driving on pothole-ridden roads at this very moment who would rather be driving on roads that were maintained the way the roads are maintained in Northern Europe, but they're not. Now, when you explained this wildly radical, hugely progressive, totally outlandish tax scheme in an op-ed, you got a package from Chicago. Who sent you that package? (laughs) I got a letter from the late Milton Friedman, who most of your listeners will know is the patron saint of small government (laughs) conservatism. Right. He had written a letter to me saying, unlike you, I don't feel the government should be increasing its level of public spending right now. But like you, I feel that if the government wanted to increase its level of spending, a progressive consumption tax would be exactly the right way to pay for it. And they enclosed, it was a thick envelope. He enclosed in this envelope that he sent me a reprint of his own article from the 1943 volume of the American Economic Review, our, our leading journal, in which he had published a paper, the progressive consumption tax as a wartime measure, you know, how, how to pay for the war. If we're going to pay for the war, here's the least painful way to do it. You're going to have people give up consumption that won't matter much anyway, uh, since it's coming from the people who are consuming the most, and they'll still have the most when they're done. And we can buy the material we need to win the war, If which if we don't win the war, the rich people are going to be un- unhappy, the poor people are going to be, everybody's going to be unhappy. How did that make you feel when you got that from from? Well, I Dr. was, of course, delighted, <laughs> surprised. Never missed an opportunity to tell people about it. That's a great story. Before we started recording, you were telling me about a chapter in your new book that I think would be helpful for people to think on is in our current political environment, conversations with people who disagree with us and with whom we disagree have become a bigger and bigger source of unhappiness in our lives. What advice would you have for those of us who are not looking forward to Thanksgiving? It's a challenge, really. We have our minds made up. We don't want to hear about things that don't fit our preconceived notions. And I think on both sides of the aisle, we're guilty of this to an extent. In the luck book, I talked about people who just successful people who were just angered beyond belief at any suggestion that luck had played some role in their good fortune or that external events that Obama gave a speech urging 
successful business leaders to remember that they shipped their goods to market on roads that the community helped build. They, they hired workers that the community paid to educate. They were protected by police. So not to deny the value of your success one bit, but it was a communal effort. Uh, if you succeed, pay forward to help others succeed in the future. That became the, you didn't build that speech. People didn't want to hear a word about it. Uh, they were angry, just a vituperative response on the internet to that speech. And what I discovered quite by accident in talking with successful people about the role of luck in their own career paths, that you're much less likely to encounter that reaction if you don't try to remind them that they've been lucky to have been born here and have had good parents and all that. If you don't try to remind them of any of those things, but if instead you just ask them if they can think of any examples of when good fortune smiled on them on their way to the top. And, and for some reason, just thinking about that question isn't offensive. It doesn't, it doesn't cause them to recoil and disgust. They, they think it's an interesting question. You can see them thinking about it. Their eyes light up when they think of a, an example. They tell you about it, and that will immediately summon the memory of a second example. They'll tell you about that, too. And then suddenly they're telling you about investments we ought to be making in the schools and so on. Probably the most vivid example of the value of asking a question came in a conversation I had with opponents of the Affordable Care Act. The people who, who were most bitterly opposed to it, like some of the acts featured, like the requirement that they sell you insurance at affordable rates, even if you have a pre-existing, oh, that was a good feature. Uh, even if you have a pre-existing condition, that's a, I like that. What didn't they like then? It was the mandate. And so you could try to explain to them about the statistical workings of insurance markets and so on, how the mandate was necessary. Never once did that get me any further along in the conversation. Uh, finally, in one of these conversations, in exasperation, I asked someone, what do you think would happen if the government required insurance companies to sell fire insurance at affordable rates to people whose homes had already burned down? And that's not an offensive question. Nobody gets angry. They think about it. It's not a hard question. Uh, they think about it just for a few moments. You know, immediately, they say, well, the, the insurance companies would go bankrupt if you required that. Who would buy insurance before his home burned down if you could get it for the same low rate after it burned down? And an insurance company obviously can't build you a new home on a couple hundred dollars worth of insurance premium if that's all they're getting per burned out house. And then it's just a very short step. Usually they make it themselves, but you can step in at that point and say, well, the mandate serves that function. The insurance company and you both know if you have a pre-existing condition, you're the guy whose house is already burned down. They can't sell you insurance at affordable rates unless everybody else is in the pool and if they know that you're uh, going to be the expensive one, they can't sell you at the same rates unless there's some other way to have everybody else be in the pool. And that's why we have mandate. So don't try to go deep on adverse selection and the curse of the winner, I think, is the other one. Yeah, yeah that, that's a losing strategy. The, the chapter <laughs> title of, of, of this uh, chapter I mentioned to you is Ask, Don't Tell. Yeah. Don't try to tell people anything. They're not going to hear it. Ask them the right question and maybe you'll get somewhere. All right, Bob, we're going to wrap up here in just a minute, but a couple more questions. What makes you hopeful? I think a lot of my friends accuse me of being an optimist. I don't think of myself as one. I think that what makes me embrace optimistic sounding conclusions is that 
all of the most serious problems that we face, uh, and as I see them, are ones that can be solved with simple policy changes that won't demand painful sacrifices from anyone. I don't think people realize that. I think there's a a huge job to be done to explain that to people. I mean, we've talked about some of the, the logic already. So if, if I'm wealthy and they tax me and others like me more heavily, we all think we're not going to be able to buy life special extras as easily if they do that. But that's false. Why? Because your ability to bid for life special extras, one of those things, they're things that are always and everywhere in short supply. Your ability to get those depends on your relative bidding power. And if your taxes go up and mine go up too, our relative bidding power is completely unaffected by that. And if everyone knew that, why would we object to raising our taxes to pay for green energy? Green energy is going to help us avoid floods, fires, droughts, and the other things that have been threatening our future. We'd like to see those problems dealt with. If we could deal with them without having to give up anything, the same penthouse apartments overlooking Central Park end up in the same hands as before when the rich pay high taxes as when they pay low taxes. So my optimism, if you could call it that, rests on the belief that if people understood the true state of affairs, they would adopt the ready solutions that we have at our disposal already for dealing with the most serious problems that we faced. So far, that hasn't happened. I'm getting older year by year, like everyone else. I'm near the end of the line. Will I see it happen? I don't know. I hope I do. But I'm hopeful that if I were a multi-billionaire, I'd go to Pixar. I'd hire their best animation team. I'd hire the best script writers. I would have them make a 10-minute video explaining how we could solve all these problems without demanding painful sacrifices for anyone, then I'd run it in prime time as often as necessary until we elected the people who would do these things. Last question. Do you feel rich? I do, yeah. I actually am rich, even by absolute standards. Nowhere near as rich as the people we read about. But if you've got more than you plan to spend, then you're rich. And I've got more than I plan to spend. You know, we're, we're arguing about which charities will get what when we die. Good place to be. Bob, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Twitter, whenever I see something that pushes me to do that. And I'm at, at econ, E-C-O-N, naturalist, N-A-T-U-R-A-L-I-S-T, at econ naturalist on Twitter. And I, I link to things I write on there. Lots of YouTube videos online you can find if you want to hear talks about this or that. I watched one of them today. They're very interesting. They're worth your time. We'll put links to Bob's stuff in the show notes. Bob, Frank, thanks for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Paul, what a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, sometimes when I run across these people that I want to talk to, like Bob Frank, I don't know where to start because Bob's written like a dozen books, many of which are kind of right in the crosshairs of what we talk about here on Crazy Money. And the one that caught my eye, luck and success, good fortune in the myth of meritocracy, I was like, ooh, that's an interesting topic I want to dig into because I know it's it's a little bit painful for those of us who've been successful to sort of like I got to acknowledge that I've been lucky. Yeah, I worked hard. But anyway, but there's also like eight other books of his that I'd really like to take an hour to talk about with him. And maybe we'll do that at some point in the future. For now, for today, just for today, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into the takeaways. Number one, make a lucky list. 
List out exactly how you've been lucky. You can do this in three minutes. And then the more you write it, the more you'll start to see where luck has played a role in your life for the rest of the day. It will make you more grateful. It will make you a happier person, more delightful to be around, which coincidentally could also make you more lucky. Isn't that weird? Number two, it was interesting as I thought through this, as I mentioned this to Bob, is that I realized that I couldn't choose to be lucky as a person, that that was all the will of the universe or randomness, if you want to think of it that way, but that I, as a parent, have the opportunity to pass on luck to my kids. And I say luck in quotes because from this point of view, it's so obvious that my kids are going to be, quote, luckier than other kids based on not just the resources we have, but the choice we've made to really focus on their development as human beings. And we're not getting everything right, but all in all, they're far luckier than the average person, uh, certainly in the world and, and even in this country. So what I'm trying to think about is how do I help pass on luck to somebody who isn't my child? How do you give other children who were born in less lucky circumstances the opportunity to experience a little bit of good fortune in their life. We've made big contributions to job training programs in the past. We're thinking very hard about how we can put our money to work in the world of literacy for disadvantaged youth. And this will continue to be the guideline of how we share the resources that we've been blessed with because partially due to the role of luck in our lives. How can you pass on luck, not only to your children, but to somebody who isn't your child? Takeaway number three don't devalue happiness. Happiness is the goal. The goal isn't to have a big house or a big title or a lot of money. Those things are what we talked about in a Stoicism episode last year. They're called instrumental goals. They are things you believe will lead to happiness, but the ultimate goal, the terminal goal is happiness. So take the shortcut, go right to happiness, live the life you want to live. Don't live a life in service of short-term goals that you think will make you happy. Uh, lastly, this isn't a takeaway, but just was something to follow up on. If solar power and renewable energy is something, obviously it's very important to Bob. It's something that I do feel guilty about having been blessed with money. No, but I do feel guilty about the extent to which my increased consumption is taking a toll on the environment. Even if you don't believe in global warming, which you should, even if you don't believe in it, just think about the amount of trash that you create as somebody who consumes more than 99% of the other people on the planet. And solar power is something that even if you don't want to put the panels on your roof, you can look up. It is very likely that your local utility has a solar power program that you can subscribe to. And you don't have to put your whole bill on solar power. You can do a certain percentage of your bill on solar power. It will cost you a little bit more per month. But as I said to Bob, it's one way we can indicate that there is a market demand for cleaner power out there. Apologies to my friends that work in the petroleum business or in the uh, gasoline station business. But solar power is something that would, if we can get the economics to work, it's part of the solution in the long run. And the one of the ways you get the economics to work is to prove that the demand is there so that the volume can, over time, the volume can drive down per unit costs. That is a long and ineloquent way to say sign up for solar power. Google it today. Thanks for your time. Thanks for sticking around. I'm pleased it meant enough to you to do so. We'll be back next week to get smarter together. In the meantime, Mike Caron. In the meantime, <laughs> Mike, let's just cut that back to wherever it started to go off the rails. Be back soon with more... <laughs> We'll be back soon with more smart people to help us get smart together. In the meantime, Mike Carano 
Uh, don't make me say smart again. Goodbye. <laughs>